And I remember doing, you know, almost like a cartwheel over the top and landing and there was this big crunch and there was this split second where nothing else happened. And then I started sliding. Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. Hi, everybody. Just to let you know, in today's episode, at the start-ish, there is some audio issues for about five minutes. We do fix it, and it's only for about five minutes, so please don't stop listening to the episode. Okay, let's get into the intro. In 2017, a serious motorbike accident in Vietnam nearly took today's guest's life and leg. She was told that she would have trouble walking again, and it ended a promising volleyball career. Multiple surgeries later, she was beating recovery expectations, but despite this, not long after the accident, she suffered from depression and hit rock bottom. Once on the other side of this, she began researching how some people cope with major life changes better than others, conducting interviews with people all over the world. Now a mental well-being advocate, she shares her findings and tools with people around the world. Two years after her accident, she hiked Machu Picchu and in 2020, she returned to competitive volleyball. She co-hosts the podcast Happiness for Cynics and is author of Self-Care is Church for Non-Believers. Episode 60, Murray Skelton. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success. And you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. My facial expressions as a whole, I have a serious wretched in this face and I don't even mean to have it. So now I have to be like, hang on, what are, what are my facial expressions doing, you know? <laughs> Like, I'm so coordinated with them. I have not seen resting bitch face, just going to let you know. I've only seen you smile this whole time, so we're good. <laughs> the amount of times a day my husband would be like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I'm watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fine. Oh, goodness. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Now, um... You've got a very interesting tale to your now mental health advocacy, but how would you sort of describe yourself? Because you're an author, a speaker, a podcaster, a former athlete. So how would you sort of sum up Marie in a nutshell? Busy. I think that's how everyone <laughs> I think that's how everyone sees my life from the outside. Um, but I... I get bored really easily and I love, um, it sounds really naff now, but I love learning new things and exploring new things. So even, you know, in my career, it's sort of a jack of all trades, sort of um, get stuff done um, would be the way that people kind of describe me. Uh, And yeah, if you're going to do something, do it well. It's kind of how I approach life. (laughs) So yeah, I guess that that has always been me. Was it would you, professional volleyball? Is there a difference between elite yes. athlete volleyball and professional volleyball? Uh, well, yes. Okay. So professional means paid, um, yeah. which I never went down that route. I um, 
as a 14 year old discovered the sport and fell in love with it. And it's nice when everyone's telling you, oh, you're good. You know, you tend to like things more <laughs> when people tell you you're okay at something. And from there quickly um, tried out for our state team and then made the Australian junior team and uh, eventually went over to the States on scholarship and played um, college volleyball there. I realised at that point uh, I was a bit short and didn't have, you know, I could have tried for a professional career but probably wasn't going to make it as a professional athlete. So, yeah. um, you know, entered the work world and I'd studied journalism. So um, worked with USA Today for a little bit um, while I was over there and then moved into corporate communications from there before coming back home. How did you find doing journalism in the States? Um, well, unfortunately, I graduated during the GFC, which wasn't a thing in Australia, but was definitely a thing in America. It was a thing in Australia. Um, it wasn't as bad, but it was definitely a thing. It, well, I feel like everyone talked about it a lot here, but really oh. when you look at the stats, we kept growing <laughs> as a country. So oh, well, I, I was made, my role so was made redundant, big. so I very oh, much okay. felt it. <laughs> I think there was a bit of fear. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, okay, it was a thing, particularly for some people who were impacted as individuals. <laughs> take it back, Murray, take that. it back. Yeah. <laughs> I was in recruitment uh, at the time. No one was hiring anybody. So, you know, oh, that was well, probably there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, so not only was it the GFC, but also, um, you know, journalism has just gone downhill since the internet came about. So more and more citizen blogs, you know, exactly what we're doing now, we're telling different stories and that's really taken, you know, uh, taken a lot of voice away from traditional newspapers. So it was wonderful and great, but on a, in a decline when I joined. I think it's interesting because when you look at it now, a lot of the, and I'm not going to name any names, but a lot of the mm -hmm. uh, mainstream media websites, it's more clickbaity, you know, yep. it's not. It's their only way to stay alive. The the ethics. So we, we actually studied ethics in journalism. It sounds like an oxymoron nowadays. Yeah, right? yeah. But I, I took that reason for being so the three pillars of a democracy is a healthy government healthy judicial system and healthy media yeah. and they all hold each other to account and so I was yeah. so idealistic when I graduated <laughs> and uh, you know I've just watched as good thing you're journalism. not living in Victoria at the moment Mary. Oh. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that and everyone can look up on YouTube and see what's happening with people that are saying anything that's not the government narrative and that is all I am going to say on that mm -hmm. yep <laughs> look I think the sad thing is it's just the same everywhere it really is so uh, yeah yep I'm out now I'm in corporate I've sold my soul and I now work <laughs> in financial services which is even worse I may as well have become a politician <laughs> well yeah well Yes, yep. but you're also you you're podcasting, so I think that's yes. also that evens up the the balance a little bit as well. Definitely, and I think um, you know we'll probably get into it, but there, there's a lot going on on the side as well. Like before, when I said busy, um, there's what pays the bills, and then there's what I'm passionate about, and um, they both pull me in kind of different directions at times, unfortunately, but. I'm not alone that way, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get to the point of 
uh, being an author and and doing your own podcast because you went through a very mm-hmm. corporate yeah. route apart from your athlete athletic stuff. Yeah. Um, how do you sort of end up at this end point of being this mental health advocate? Sure. So for me, I had lived the life that Western society says we should live, you know, work hard and everything will be great. And no one tells you what great is. It's just this thing yeah. that, you know, yeah. you know, and the implication is you'll be happy. Yeah. But um, yeah. I was working in the banking industry when the Royal Commission hit. And I can tell you, I had an income, but I was not happy. It was not a great time to be in banking. And I went through burnout at that time, but didn't really have a name back then. It's just, I was working crazy hours. I was always sick. I always had a cold, I was fatigued. My poor husband, I went through a lot, <laughs> a lot of cranky moods. Um, but you know, it was a career and yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was a career and, and I was progressing and being rewarded and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And then I went on a holiday with my bestie from university. We've been talking about doing it for years. She kept popping out kids. So it took us a while to get there, but yeah. we took this trip. They're expensive. <laughs> and I know they're expensive and you've got to yeah, look anyway, after it, them. That's why I don't have kids. Plan for them, and (laughs) (laughs) me neither. (laughs) Um, So we eventually got to go on this trip through Cambodia and Vietnam, and you know, being that person who just says yes without thinking a lot of the times, I we agreed to do this um, motorbike tour through Central Vietnam, and we're on mopeds, and they were going to teach us how to you know ride them and. That morning, we had driven through rice fields for about two hours in the stinking hot, but it was like straight line, straight line, straight line, straight line. So you're on the moped now? Yeah, on the mopeds. And we stopped for morning tea and started up again and started going through the mountains. And, you know, not long after morning tea, I've probably been on the bikes for about 20 minutes. some people pulled in front of us on their mopeds and started going really, really slow. Don't you hate it when people do that? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's our like group walking started down the getting bad enough. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm a fast walker. <laughs> I don't know about you, but yeah. Um, so these people pulled in front and our group started getting separated from the front of the group. And so the 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 guy from the tour group kind of waved me to overtake them. And in Vietnam, they don't do signage the way we do here in Australia. So I pulled into the middle of the road, accelerated to overtake these people because this guy had said, you know, go and drove straight into a hairpin turn and just couldn't brake fast enough and slow down fast enough to not drift across the other lane and go up and over the barrier. So I hit oh that barrier. Goodness. Yeah, uh, so I hit the barrier. And I remember doing, you know, almost like a cartwheel over the top and landing and there was this big crunch and there was this split second where nothing else happened. And then I started sliding. And so from there, I tumbled down the mountain and eventually came to a stop. Um, And I looked down and couldn't see my left leg below my knee. There was just nothing there. And then the pain just hit me. Like, have you ever been dunked by a wave and the yeah. the air just leaves your your lungs? 
was just this wave of pain. And it wasn't coming from my leg, thankfully. It was my shoulder. So I kind of looked at my shoulder. And I think that was the crunch when I'd gone over the um, over the barrier. So I dislocated my shoulder, it turned out, and pretty much torn my leg off from the knee, left leg off from the knee. And yeah, I think at that point, everything kind of just shut down, right? Like I was just trying to deal with the pain. I didn't want to think about what it meant to not be able to see my leg. Um, a few minutes later, a few people started coming down the mountain to me and then Joe, who I'd been travelling with, because um, she'd been in the first group that hadn't realised there'd been an accident. She probably got there, I don't know, 10 minutes later. Did you realise... Were you in shock to the point of, okay, I've just done my shoulder and my, am I, um, I've injured myself leg. or did you, did it sort of hit you the enormity of no. like what was going on with your leg? Not at all. Um, and I, I was so lucky. The whole thing was not lucky, but I was unbelievably lucky in that um, it turned out my leg was actually still somewhat attached underneath me. It was just folded under multiple times. Oh, um, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying not it was to the be multiple, too graphic. It was the multiple times that got me there. <laughs> uh, it was uh, very broken. So in the end, I had um, a break to the fib- fibula and tibia above the ankle. So that was folded up and under um, pretty much at my ankle. And then um, I had torn the knee open uh, but through that whole horrific shredding of my leg the veins were still there the arteries were still attached wow and so you about, weren't bleeding out I wasn't but I wow. had at that time not even put two and two together that, that was uh, something to be worried about I look back now and I think that would be the first thing you'd want to torn it you know you've seen all the Hollywood movies you get a tourniquet and you well, you know, I actually do that. just interviewed um, a gentleman who he's now a um, – he won the gold medal in Paralympics and he was in mm-hmm. Afghanistan and he lost his leg. Um, so, yeah, that was the first thing that he was like trying to get – but he's trained on that. Like that's a training yeah. thing, you yep. know. Yep. Yeah. Well, Hollywood movies will not train you for a moment like this. <laughs> so I looked down and that was it. My brain left. All I all I could do was try and cope with the pain. So we sat there for about 20 more minutes. And thankfully, these two French doctors had seen what had happened and they kind of climbed down the mountain to us and they were oh, sitting wow, with that us. Was lucky. Um. Were they in your group, the French doctors? No, they were just travellers like oh, us. Wow. Um, not knowing that I speak French, I'd actually been to a French-Australian <laughs> primary school and high school. So they sat there talking about how they were sure my leg would have to be amputated. And I remember saying to Joe, I was like, tell them to stop, I can't hear this. <laughs> the poor things were mortified. They thought that I was speaking without <laughs> anyone else being able to understand them. Um, you didn't but, say the French didn't come back to you then and go shut up. <laughs> I, I said it to Joe. I was like, I, I just can't deal with this right now. Um, but the the ambulance showed up and they were like, it was a guy in a truck. Yeah. And so these French doctors were like, no, 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 go back. You need to bring back drugs and a doctor before we move her. So that again, was good it was of like them to another, do that. 
oh, it really was. Yeah. Um, so eventually, you know, that happened and I got back to what was essentially a clinic in central Vietnam. And well, it's a third world country. So, yeah. 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 And again, I was so lucky. The doctor that they called in from home had trained in America, first class wow. medical you know, wow. education. And my legs are now just as straight as each other, more so than uh, many people are born with. <laughs> so this guy did an amazing job in the middle That's of nowhere awesome. without, you know, your usual uh, you know, medical resources. So huge props to, to him yeah. and the, the work that his team did. But, yeah, so it turned out I had a lot of internal bleeding, so they needed to make sure nothing was punctured or, or too badly um, hurt in, internally, but I definitely was bruised and battered, lots of cuts all over my body, the leg and the shoulder. From there, we airlifted to Thailand and then two weeks home, uh, two weeks later, home to Sydney. That's when the rehab started. <laughs> so you were, so two weeks in Thailand, uh, Vietnam? Uh, four days in Vietnam. You know, we had conversations with them about how I was in too much pain and, well, I didn't. I was out for days. I, I didn't eat. I didn't, you know, I don't remember it. But my husband flew in. Joe was still there and they were saying she's in too much pain. Can you give her something? And they were saying we don't have enough. Um, it's too expensive. And they were saying we don't care about the cost. And they were saying but we don't have it, you know. So as quickly as possible they got me out of there to uh, – a hospital with what we would consider, you know, first world facilities and support and, and everything. So um, we flew to Thailand or Bangkok International Hospital um, and that was night and day. I had two menus, a Thai menu and a Western menu. Marie, hang on a minute, Marie. We've got a, we've got a clunking that's happening in, the, in your audio. And I don't know mm -hmm. what's happening. It wasn't at the start. It's just happened the last couple of minutes. All right, we're back. <laughs> we had some technical difficulties, but we're back. So, Marie, you were saying that you uh, were transferred to a better hospital with better drugs. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and <laughs> anyone who's who's been given good drugs knows what that means. <laughs> what, do they, what did they need to give you, bloody ketamine and morphine and stuff? They gave me, oh, what was it called? Um, uh, so I, I'd had some morphine, but it just wasn't. I, I was just so badly injured that it was barely scratching the surface. Phenyl, uh, not phenylephrine, that's what you get for cold and flus. starts oh. with a P. Anyway, it's the next step up from morphine and Naughty, that okay. stuff works. Highly addictive, not good for just oh. recreational use, but <laughs> um, it made the difference between recovery and just, you know, being in a world of hurt. So, mm. yeah, mm. it's good. So tell me um, what was the process of getting out of Vietnam because do they make you pay? I have heard, I don't know if it's Vietnam or Thailand, I'm not 100% sure, they make you pay your bill before you leave the hospital. Mm -hmm. And yep. the bills are like extraordinarily expensive, like 150 grand sort of a thing. So I had travel insurance. Um, I didn't mm -hmm. realise that mopeds weren't included. Covered. They're not. They're not covered, yep. no. Yep. And I didn't read the 78 pages of 
detail. <laughs> um, so when we first got there, we called the insurance company um, and they wouldn't let us go into surgery, which was critical and urgent if I wanted any chance of saving my leg. So the doctors and the hospital said, we'll take you in, but you have to show you can pay. Um, we called the insurance company and they said, we need 24 hours to assess your claim. And we went, well, that's no use I'm to dying. us. I'm <laughs> dying. Like I can't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so my best friend, uh, my husband put their credit cards down and said, just do what you need to do. Um, so that at least first day was covered and the first initial operations were covered. We we're only there four days in the end. So I think it came out and again, central Vietnam it came out to be about $40,000 Australian for that piece. So that was relatively cheap. <laughs> Still $40,000. Yeah. I didn't have sitting in my savings account, but it no, was relatively it, cheap. Compared to hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars that people can get stung with. Yeah. Yeah. And then being air evacuated with medical facilities was hundreds of thousands of dollars and oh. the two weeks in Thailand and trip back added hundreds of thousands more. And thankfully my employer at the time, so I'll tell a good story here of the banks, <laughs> you don't often hear them, but I was working for Commonwealth Bank at the time and they have a chief medical officer and with 50,000 employees, it's like a little town. So, you know, things happen to their employees all the time and um, CBA helped to cover some of my costs. So Wow, that's incredible. Happy. Yeah, absolutely. So grateful to them for that. So I got very, very lucky, but it, it bankrupts people. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a tough thing for a lot of people, and I was again very lucky <laughs> through through it all. So when you came back to Australia, did you? So hang on, let's take a step back. How many surgeries did you have over in Vietnam and and then Thailand? Sure. <clears throat> so I had two surgeries. So th there was a bit of a mix up in uh, Vietnam. So they did the surgery on my leg but through everything forgot that my shoulder was dislocated. So when I woke up the next day, I was still in complete agony <laughs> with the shoulder. Um, so they took me back into surgery uh, the next morning, following morning when the doctor came oh. back in um, to do the shoulder. And while they were doing that, they cut into my arm to fix a broken bone that wasn't broken because they had the wrong x-rays. <coughs> oh goodness and so to this date I still wonder whether some poor Vietnamese person is walking around with a broken arm and no treatment because they had mine and I had theirs or something surely they mm. would have noticed but um so they they did that you know I came back a bit bandaged up strangely and my husband and Joe were like what's what's going on here why why is she cut there um but no harm pretty much and then Imagine uh, the surgeon cutting and going, there's no bone broken here. Yeah, what are we Jeez doing in here Louise. again? Why, why are Jeez we here? Louise. Did they apologise at least? We'll take that um, off the bill. No one spoke No one spoke English. So the whole thing was just really Did difficult. Did they have translation apps back then? I don't know. And, again, those four days in Vietnam, I – You're out of the, it. You're out of it. I was out of it. I was so out of yeah. it. I remember vaguely someone trying to force me to eat the pho broth 
and me just yeah. not wanting a bar of it, but them saying you've got to eat. I have vague recollections yeah. of that and that's about it. For those so, in countries that don't have a huge a Vietnamese population, you guys probably pronounce it pho. It's pho. <laughs> how you correctly yeah. pronounce it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just a beef broth and, uh, yeah, yeah, anyway. So, delicious. It is lovely, actually. It's a favourite. Uh, it's lovely, yeah. Yeah. So I, I got really lucky with the finances in Thailand and Vietnam had those two operations when we got to Thailand they did one more operation on my leg to change out so because the bones are so broken through my left leg they put this big metal contraption on the outside of your leg and drill it into the bones all the way down your leg to keep it solid like the ca- the cagey thing yeah yeah so they drill it in to the bones all the way down to keep it from moving so that your bones can heal. So they replaced the Vietnamese one with a new modern one that would get through security at the airport and could enable um, enable me to go into MRI machines. It wasn't going to get pulled out know, of your leg. The... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if your ferrous metal in your body is a bit of a problem when you go into an MRI mm-hmm. machine. Yep, yep. So they replaced it. I probably could have gotten away with not doing that, but um, you know, they they thought that was needed. Does that mean you had to have the whole surgery again? They'd already set the bones and laid the leg out. They, I'm, I'm not one hundred percent sure about all the details. Again, I was really very out of it for yeah. at least the first two weeks after the accident. Because to to a non-medical person, if they're replacing it, they have to then take out the pins that are in your bone, mm-hmm. put a new pin in. Like that's... Yep. And yeah. Yep. Not, and not so I've got all up and down my leg these divots. They're like dimples all up and down my leg where they've <laughs> drilled into the leg and the bone. <laughs> I am not worried about cellulite. Nothing beats these dimples. <laughs> Yeah, so there were three before I got back and then I had another nine surgeries um, over the next probably nine months total. And Sorry, really, cat's now decided to come and join us as well. It's George. not a podcast unless a cat jumps in. <laughs> I, know. I normally shut the door so he's out because he like headbutts the mic and headbutts me and it's disruptive, mm-hmm. but it's so bloody hot. I can't. Anyway, sorry, we digress. No, you're right. Um, yeah, so over the next few months, I spent three months at uh, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in uh, Newtown in Sydney, laying on my back. I couldn't even roll over. That was probably one of the worst things because my left leg was injured in my right shoulder. So there was just no way to not lay on an injury. <laughs> so-, so how did they stop bed sores and stuff? Um, so because I was capable of moving, you you can shuffle around yourself and after about three weeks, I was able to sit up so you can then move the pressure, um, to different areas. So bed sores weren't an issue, but it was just, you know, three months laying on your back. A nightmare. Oh, nightmare. Not great. Yeah. (laughs) Not great. And in and out of surgeries that whole time. And pretty much, you know, I remember it was just take each day as it comes and then 
things started to get better. I started getting back into a better daily routine and I was going to bed at night and not so tired. Um, they started, you know, lowering the drugs um, and the doctors came in one day and they're like, all right, so here's where we're at. We have saved your leg. We don't know how useful it's going to be. Um, it might just be a leg in looks but not use. Um, but, you know, there's no infection and it's there. <laughs> um, but pretty much you may walk with a limp for the rest of your life. You won't play volleyball ever again. Um, and we're just going to have to wait and see what kind of use you get from it. Shoulder, on the other hand, they've done an amazing job. So I had five full ligament tears and a partial ligament tear. Wow. And my surgeon here in Australia, who specialises in shoulders, he said it was like it's like stitching together wet pasta. So, like, I don't, you know, to me, I. They're just amazing what they do, these doctors. Yeah. Um, so he, my shoulder's been absolutely amazing. And then my knee surgeon, we did multiple surgeries to remove scar tissue and to try and get as much bend out of it and then spent, you know, ages trying to um, – my cat's meowing now, sorry. Um, <laughs> spent, we spent ages trying to um, – get bend back in the leg. Like in here, is that peanut butter or jelly? Peanut butter. The name I'm of so Marie's. sorry. Peanut name butter. Marie's cats. Who's dug out a, uh, <laughs> he's dug out a, she's dug out a um, beanie <laughs> and is walking around with it. <laughs> I don't know where she even got it from. so funny. <laughs> Anyway, uh, and meowing. We've turned into a cat podcast. Anyway, that's anyway, fine. I don't care about, about the background noise. Don't worry about it. Okay. It's funny. Yeah, so um, we started rehab then and I had to learn to walk again. So it had been by that stage nine months. The bones hadn't healed uh, the way that they should. So we had to go back in and re-break them and it was just a long drawn out process of getting to the point where I could even try to walk. The surgery that they did in Vietnam was, was not a hundred percent. So they had to redo the surgery and re-break them. So the knee was set right and the ligaments reattached as much as possible. I'm still just missing some ligaments in the knee the bone break with the fibula and tibula above the ankle, there was so much trauma around there that the bones just didn't knit back together. Yeah. And so after three months, on the day that, that I was meant to be told, okay, you're good to start putting weight through this, we went and had an X-ray and the doctor walked in. He's like, it's not good news. The bone just hasn't healed just hasn't done anything for three months. I know you've been waiting this whole time, but it hasn't done anything. So we did, it's called a hip graft. So they go into the hip and they shave off a little bit of bone and then they put that bone in between the break and kind of re-agitate the area so that your body sort of clicks into gear and goes, I need to heal again. And that worked. And they also put a big metal plate around the, the bone to kind of just give it that extra structural support. I'm sure there's it doctors is, out there who are like, that's not how it is, but that's what I heard. <laughs> so, 
So, so basically <laughs> you just feel like you're Terminator or something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this metal. I was just waiting when I first when I took my first flight to set off all the buzzers and stuff and nothing happens. It's really disappointing. My hairpins have set off those things more than my leg does. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I'd be slightly disappointed as well. At least you want some <laughs> right? some something out of it. So three months in yeah. the hospital, that's a lot mm-hmm. of time to sort of lay on your back and, and think and everything. How did that, your best friend was there, they put the credit card down, yeah. your husband's there, thankfully um, Commonwealth Bank um, assisted with the medical bills. But like what's that rehab pressure on the relationships though? Because that's a lot of strain. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, the day for my husband was get up, do the laundry, you know, feed yourself, um, do my laundry, um, go to work, come back, um, you know, clean the house, feed yourself, quickly run over for hospital, waiting hours, be there till 10, come home, do it all again. Like that was yeah. my husband's day every day for, for three months. How long um, had you been together for at this stage? Quite a while, thankfully. <laughs> we <were> definitely tested, <laughs> tested things, uh, and he was just a gem. I've, he's definitely banked a lot of credit that, unfortunately, yeah. I'm going to have to <laughs> pay back over the next few just years. Just say, look, honey, God forbid if something ever happened to you, mm-hmm. you've got credit, yep. so you know I'm going to have to look after you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Marriage yep. When we're old, I'll I'll change your diapers. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah he's definitely got the credit in the bank um so you know it was tough on him I you know my mum would come down from Newcastle every Tuesday and wash my hair for me um in bed it's the weirdest thing so you know that was just where I slept ate bathed went to the bathroom everything in that bed for three months um I watched a lot of cat videos on YouTube (laughs) You know, like you do. I'd always been a reader, but when you're yeah. in pain, you just don't have the focus. So, you know, I did watch a lot of YouTube and just mindless stuff that I could zone in and out of for for quite a while. So this was 2017. The were audiobooks a thing yeah. then? They were. I hadn't really gotten into it, into yeah. audiobooks then. But again, that was probably too much for me anyway. Um, I just didn't have the bandwidth, mental, yeah, bandwidth to to follow along for anything for too long. Um, and then uh, we got out, and so the the good news was during all of that, you've got this pain, which is a super focuser, and you've got this goal to get out of hospital. You know, just to be able to sleep in and not have people come in and tell you when to wake up and when to go to bed and when the lights go out and what food you're going to eat that day and, you know, to be on your own schedule. So you've got this goal. And when I finally got out of hospital, it felt like the happiest day ever. You know, that was goal number one achieved. We're out. And I was in a wheelchair still. It wasn't six months later was when I first started learning how to walk again. Um, And so we got out of hospital and it was this glorious moment. And I think all I did for the first day was still sit on the couch and watch TV. Like I couldn't do anything (laughs) 
but I got to do what I wanted to do, which was fine, and yeah, wake up when in I your wanted own to environment. wake up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and probably a good two weeks later, I'd say, um, was when everything fell apart. You know, until that point, everything had been progressing in a real linear way, and I was getting slowly better, and then out of nowhere, I started crying one evening and just was feeling like crap and I put myself in bed. I didn't leave bed for four days. I just lost it, completely lost it. I think the the trauma um, came back to me and what was hardest was I, I didn't know why, why then, why all of a sudden when things were actually getting better, why not earlier when I was upset about, you know, potentially never walking again or, you know, those were bad days, but nothing like what hit after I got home. And then on the fourth day I did get up and I went to my physio appointment, but I just felt, just felt empty. Uh, And I don't know if any of your listeners have suffered, suffered with mental health issues before but you know it's a common sign of depression is just not feeling anything and for quite a while I just felt nothing and sort of went through my days um, just in a bit of a haze and feeling nothing I was just numb to it all and so coming out the other side of that which was completely accidental by the way and I'll circle back to how in a second, but coming out the other side of the depression, which just came out of the blue, I really wanted to understand why, you know, why then, what was it that changed? What was, um, you know, how could I avoid it in the future? And I started looking into mental health and came across neuroscience and positive psychology and have since done some study uh, in positive psychology. So I'm not a trained uh, psychologist at all, but I am a certified happiness practitioner. <laughs> and, what does that mean, uh, a certified happiness practitioner? <laughs> so because, uh, there is... Because that to me is like anybody that just is a positive person can be like, hey, I'm a certified happiness practitioner. They, they <laughs> should be. They should be happiness <laughs> practitioners. Maybe not certified. Maybe we're all certifiable. <laughs> but Karen, um, what is it? Because it sounds like a bit of a wanky title. What is it? <laughs> It does, it does. And really I was so cynical and uh, not to self-promote too much, but my podcast is called Happiness for Cynics because I was such a cynic myself and Australians by nature tend to be, right? So um, I stumbled across. That's why you're on here. Be (laughs) self-promoting. The podcast is awesome. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Everyone needs to jump Um, on and listen to it. (laughs) Um, especially the cynics out there. So uh, I stumbled upon the field of positive psychology, which is a relatively new offshoot of psychology. And traditionally psychology has focused on what's wrong with people and how to fix Mm. people. Um, Positive psychology looks at how to stay healthy mentally and and emotionally uh, and how to maintain your resilience in a positive um, mental health space. So, so it's what more of a preventative that people do? Yeah, exactly. You know, right. instead of waiting for things to fall apart and fix it, here's what yeah. you can do to actually not get into that hole in the first place. Because we all okay. go through things that are good and bad through our lives. Some of us cope quite well and are quite resilient, 
what do they do that others don't? Mm. So that's what it's about studying, right? So I came across a lot of this stuff and I thought it was just wanky t-shirt slogans (laughs) until that point, (laughs) to be really blunt. You know, be positive, all that kind of stuff, smile, um, and realise pretty quickly that there's this ever-increasing body of research. A lot of universities are putting time and effort into, you know, what makes a good life, what makes life worth living and makes a satisfying and fulfilling life. And there's solid science behind a lot of this stuff. Um, And so back to your early question, what makes a certified happiness practitioner? (laughs) You can definitely go do a master's at a lot of universities in applied positive psychology or um, what I did is not a master's. Uh, In Australia, yep, Melbourne University has one of the best programs in the world. Okay, that makes it a bit more credible because I was thinking that it's going to be some dodgy brothers off the internet get your master's. That would be the next step, right, to do the university thing. I studied under uh, Tal Ben-Shahar, who was a Harvard professor and taught at Harvard, but he's running his own program. So it's a year-long program, not university-related. So he does have his own credentials, and I highly recommend the book Happier by Tal Ben-Shahar. So he wrote that a few years ago, and he used to teach positive psychology at Harvard and has since um, started – whole lot of other initiatives including this um, course that you can do one year course and that's teaching you how to help others find happiness really through that whole process of just trying to understand why the depression hit me so hard and so full-on and then uh, I realized that there were three things that had changed um, that I should have known and we should be telling a lot of people about that I hadn't known, probably because I'm a bit of a cynic, that I now make sure a part of my life. So firstly, I'd been discharged from hospital. So all of a sudden when people hear the word discharge, they think, okay, they're better. And so all these people who'd been coming to see me at hospital, that community of nurses and doctors and everyone who'd been there day in, day out, just gone, vanished, poof, in one day between when I'd been in hospital and when I came home and I was spending hours alone and socially isolated because I couldn't go anywhere. um, I'm surprised you didn't put a team together as part of your outpatient. And this happens to a lot of people who go through cancer treatment and, Mm. um, you know, there's so many stories out there of people who, you know, go into remission and then everyone disappears (laughs) from their life. You know, people were really good at rallying when we're sick, but just because you're discharged or in remission doesn't mean you're not still struggling a lot of the time, Mm. particularly people who've gone through chemo and radiotherapy. There's long-lasting impacts to that and to your health as well that are just tough to deal with. And everyone disappears after, you know, that that, you know, they celebrate and, and move on. So there's something there, I think, that as a society we can be better at. And even if it's just preparing the person who's leaving hospital or who's, you know, being given that di- that good news, preparing them so that they know to reach out and not just sit there in their own self-pity. <laughs> so, and I didn't know to look for that and I didn't really realise it was happening So that was the first one. So I just lost all my community and social contact. Uh, The second one was meaning and purpose. And there's a lot of research in positive psychology about having 
something to do with your time. And up mm. to 40% of retirees end up depressed within a year. And if that doesn't mm. tell you that having something to do is important, <laughs> I don't know what else would. But for me, I was like in hospital every day and they're like, get better, get better, get better. And then they discharged me and then I was just sitting at home. And I was still too ill and too um, disabled to be able to go out and do anything really and mentally you know, I was still on a lot of drugs and I just couldn't focus for a very long time. So I had nothing to do, these big long hours with nothing to do. So that was the second one. And then third one is, you know, just so, so, so common sense, right? It's just healthy body, body and mind activities. So making sure that you're sleeping well, eating well, getting exercise. Um, and there's a few other things in positive psychology that really can up your game there, like practicing kindness and gratitude, which again, sound a little wanky sometimes, but have huge impacts. And since learning about that, I've definitely brought a lot of that into my life and I'm happier than I was before pre-burnout, pre-everything, um, pre-accident, just a lot happier person. How did you, you said you accidentally came, you, you sort of went in unexpectedly and then came mm -hmm. out of it. Was it four days later? You said four days later? I stopped crying four days later. Four days so later. I huddled in bed with the lights off for four days and then right. it was months of just going through the motions of life. And, and Did you seek professional help? No, no. And when you're okay. in the middle of the storm, you don't. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. And also I felt guilty. Uh, there was a lot of guilt for not everyone feeling grateful. Well, everyone rallied. They contributed to a GoFundMe. They, everyone wow. had done so much and I knew how lucky I was. Yeah. And but so you've I also gone guilty. from being a very independent, very active person and mm -hmm. then literally you're like, like a baby, like everyone's having to bathe yep. you look after yep. you, feed you, bring everything to you. Like you can't do anything. So that in itself is yep. very, I would imagine, quite demoralising in regards to you really sort of mourn what you were compared mm -hmm. to what you, where you are. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's, it's tough though because you can't stay in that morning space for too long without people becoming uncomfortable around you. We're not good with negative emotions in our culture, mm. you know, and people will pretty early on tell you, you know, but things could have been so much worse and, and you are so lucky. And um, I, I guess for everyone, it's, there's no easy answers to dealing with trauma absolutely no easy answers. What I did find though, so the first time I told the story, I remember shaking violently when I was remembering and and my body was physically responding to that memory. Uh, and I remember then telling it another time and feeling the same thing and then telling it again and again until eventually I think, you know, my body made peace with what had happened um, and my mind could wrap its head around what had happened, why, you know, forgiving myself for getting on a moped in a foreign country as well. That wasn't an easy one to do. Lots but the of people more, do it. 
Yeah, I know. But, you know, I, I didn't, I just didn't know. And pe- so many people do it and have accidents. And I didn't know. I hadn't looked into it. And I am that person and I hate myself for being that person who's the story to warn others, you know. I'd I'd always thought of myself as smarter than that and obviously not. (laughs) So there was a lot of, you know, coming to terms with my own part in all of this and creating my own bed um, as well as what I'd lost. So, you know, there's a lot to process there. But um, the, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the the lesson learned is. Trauma is just traumatic. You Mm. just have to do the work to get through it. But, yeah, again, talking through it absolutely helps. Uh, And I know that in particular men don't talk about these things as often as women. So I think it's an important change, again, in our society that we need to push is for men to talk more openly about these things so that they can process. And also starting the blog and really processing my thoughts on paper was really helpful. So the blog's called Happiness for Cynics as well, and that's what kick-started the, the podcast. Did you – so you processed a lot of <clears throat> a lot of things on the blog publicly? Yeah, so I've got my story there, which is this um, – the prompt for what made me explore mental health more closely, trauma – response to trauma uh, and I started writing the book which I started with interviews of people who've gone through change. So what I was trying to understand was why going home from hospital triggered the mental health decline in in such a dramatic and swift way. Mm. What was it that changed between me being resilient and fighting through one of the toughest things anyone could really go through to being a crying heap for four days and not wanting to live life. You know, how, how did, how did that come about? Was it those things that you came up with was the reasons? Because to me, it's like your body's in survival mode and it's allowed Mm -hmm. you then to come back and sort of almost take a breath. And that's when, that's when the reality of everything sort of hits because you're no longer in that fighting for your life survival state. There definitely is something to um, trauma that that is different from other scenarios. So you have to process that trauma or you potentially can end up in a bad mental health space for the rest of your life if you're not dealing with that you can end up with PTSD you can end up with depression and anxiety and a whole range of other things that will just last forever if you don't put in the work to process the trauma and even then sometimes it's not as simple as only putting in the work right so some things are just traumatic right what made you do it so publicly though I interviewed a lady um she's actually a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist Mm -hmm. her name's um Jan Jan Canty. So those that want to go back and have a look, listen to it. It's episode 31. And it was a domino effect of murder. So her husband was murdered and uh, he ended up having a double life. She ended up finding out mm-hmm. he had a complete double double mm-hmm. life. Um, and she ended up writing a book and she said that she didn't want to use the process of being cathartic because she didn't feel that it was fair on the reader, which I thought was a very interesting statement so that's why I'm so interested in regards to you saying that Mm -hmm. you are happy to do it as a blog and being so public 
about it. What was the reasoning for that? I was angry. I was so angry that no one had warned me to expect this and no one had given me the tools which are so common and so researched. The amount of people I spoke to who had gone through exactly the same response to trauma or change, major change in their life, the exact same thing had happened to them and no one had warned any of us. So there's pages and pages of blogs and you know, first-person articles and information out there about cancer survivors, for instance, uh, retirees, people who um, finish up long careers with the army or, you know, armed forces and their transition back to um, non-armed forces life. So veterans, there, there are these common scenarios and big moments of change in people's lives that happen all the time and often lead people to poor mental health. And the more people I interviewed, when I was just trying to work out why it had happened and what was going on, and, you know, again, I was a journalist, so that's what journalists do. We go and interview people and we write and we research. (laughs) So that was just back into my my natural (laughs) happy place. But the more people I interviewed, the angrier I got. I was like, this is the same story over and over and over and over again. And why did no one say anything to me? Why did no one say you need to protect yourself from from this and here's what to expect? It's so true. I had a mate of mine that went through uh, cancer. So at the time of diagnosis, she was in hospital and they sort of just left her with no mental health support. I mean, that's a huge diagnosis. Mm-hmm. She had a four-month-old child and I rang her and she was beside herself and I ended up getting on the phone to the unit manager of her ward and ripping shreds off them and saying you needed you need to give her some mm-hmm. phone numbers to call for mental health support. Yep. And their response was they get it when they get discharged. Now, she wasn't going to get discharged for another 10 days. So I'm like, that's not going to help her lying in a hospital mm-hmm. bed now. I said, you need to be in there in the next 10 minutes. Yep. <laughs> so, and yeah. Here's the crazy thing. It's as simple as exactly that, giving someone some phone numbers yeah. and saying many people experience this. Like we know, and the science is there, the research is there. I've talked to friends of mine who are nurses, who are doctors, and they're like, oh, yeah, we yeah. see that often. But no one says anything. Yeah, so it should be a standard. Just, here's a here's a step by step. You know, take booklet. take the fact sheet. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's that's really why I was like, I need to tell this story. Yeah. Um, because I hadn't bought into a lot of this mental health world and particularly the positive psychology stuff, that was a huge surprise to me. But mostly it was that this was so well researched now and there is still so much scepticism and cynicism, particularly in Australia. Um, It's just part of our nature and our culture. And so I just opened up this whole new world that I didn't know existed and I felt I'd been cheated. (laughs) I felt like, how did I miss all of this and why didn't I learn this in school? And the great news is there is so much of this well-being teaching coming through our schools now, how to deal with emotions better rather than bottling them, how to, you know, the importance of balancing our negativity bias. So there's this thing called negativity bias which is um, 
built into us uh, evolutionary. So the person who could uh, understand that a lion was a threat was going to survive more than the person who was more focused on nice things like the smelling the flowers, right? So negativity is something that's ingrained in us and built into us, but without balancing that out through things like just having a positive attitude or being grateful, we can spend a lot of time just focusing on the negative, 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 negative. So how things you, like that. How do you balance that though? Because there's one thing mm-hmm. in regards to educating it and, and teaching it in schools. And then there's another thing of um, creating a generation that is mentally health uh, positive and focused, which is a great thing but Mm -hmm. also going too far and creating a a generation that is needing constant reinforcement, you know, that the participation awards generation, like, you know, why can't I walk into a hundred grand job, my first job and that self entitlement. So how do you navigate a, um, a positive in your opinion and a non-clinical opinion? Um, (laughs) uh, we have to state that for legal reasons, obviously, but how Mm -hmm. do you, um, how do you navigate that in your opinion in regards to let's focus on mental health and there's an, there's an importance of that compared to cotton wooling and overcoddling and creating yeah. dramas because no one really cares when you get into the workforce what how you no. feel. You just got to get the job done. There's KPIs. Like get on with it, <laughs> you know. like. Yeah. And I think that the millennials who are uh, often accused of uh, being coddled and cotton wooled, that was a, a swing of the pendulum that has gone to one extreme that we're now realizing uh, doesn't serve them or us or society. It doesn't serve anyone. So I absolutely 100% agree with you. Unfortunately, they're not the ones that are getting this training. It's not an opinion, it's a statement. (laughs) (laughs) Generally, I'll agree with you. I shouldn't say that. We're going to get a lot of hate mail. Generally, I will absolutely agree with you. It's a general opinion. The helicopter parent. Yeah. General Um, opinion, not not a personal opinion. They're not the ones that have received this well-being training. They're out of school now. So it's this yeah. next generation behind them that are getting this. And I think what we're actually seeing is a more is a swing back of the pendulum to actual realistic, practical mental health. So, yeah. you know, don't sugarcoat everything. Have real feelings. You don't have to or you shouldn't always have positive feelings you need to have both positive and negative feelings but what you can't have is negative behaviors you know understanding the difference between feeling something which is natural and normal but not behaving badly as a result those are the really common grounded things that we're now teaching our kids that the millennial generation missed out on unfortunately (laughs) so I think we're actually moving forward in a good way I think that the millennial generation is actually very, I don't know, misunderstood in some regards. They've got a lot of positives. (laughs) We're not ragging on the millennial generation. Um, (laughs) We are really, but. (laughs) No, look, I'm not because it's not their fault they've been handed, you know, this this Mm -hmm. set of situation. They weren't giving out themselves participation trophies. They weren't, you know. Yeah, I have an issue with participation trophies, obviously. (laughs) It's not the millennials, it's the participation trophies. Um, I do too. I I do think that uh, we, we, again, you know, back to that pendulum, we swung far too 
far one way. I, however, do think that all generations are struggling in today's world. So the book mm. that I'm writing is more about change rather mm. than the mental health side of things. Um, and what I didn't mention earlier on is that through corporate communications, I've ended up in change management. So looking at change and how our bodies are dealing with change and the 21st century is a time like no other. You know, everyone's talking about the pace of change, how much change we're dealing with, etc. But all generations are trying to work out how best to deal with that now. Well, I actually think that the millennials are the best at dealing with that. I mean, if yep. you think about it, the jobs that they're going into now never existed. There was never the, mm-hmm. the content creation side of things. Podcasting wasn't a thing. YouTube millionaires wasn't yep. a thing. You know, I wouldn't know how to develop an app. Social media, I freaking hate. They embrace it, you know, like they've created this whole different avenue of income that different generations kind of don't understand and they just kind of go, oh, that's, they're not hardworking, mm-hmm. but they are. It's just not in areas that other generations understand. And they're resourceful and they're yeah. resilient. So they're used to yeah. growing up in an age where, you know, we didn't even have internet when I was born, or kind of, but not really. And not when um, I was born, but I remember it. I remember the whole yeah. dial up, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chat rooms, yeah. which is so weird right now, like now to think, well, I guess. But <laughs> I know, it's a, like a cool thing <laughs> to do. You just child. randomly connect with someone. <laughs> randomly who was never yeah. who they said they were but you knew that well, I, always thought, that. I always thought that, that was true you know because <laughs> you didn't know any different like I was a kid no, you, you kind of go well you know they say they're a 25 year old mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas today's kids know about cyber danger they know about cyber security they know about you know the latest apps and the stuff before them and they've learned new skills on each of them that they can apply so they are far more resilient with change than we are so again they might have been um been caught cotton wool is not a verb but i'm using it as a verb they might have been oh, wrapped i would in say cotton it's a wool. verb adjective <laughs> it is it an adjective <laughs> I think it should be. <laughs> but, We're making um, it a verb, also... everybody. It's a verb as of today. <laughs> I'll let the Oxford Dictionary know. <laughs> I'll write a letter. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that they've definitely got skills that are going to set them up to succeed in this new world and the older generations are still kind of lagging a little bit with coming to terms with that. And the way that that shows up in the statistics is the higher levels of anxiety, depression, obesity, et cetera, and the the slide backwards in mental and physical health that all of us are seeing, uh, I think is a direct uh, result of us not coping with the way this new world works. And there's a variety Mm. of things that go into that, but definitely – Part of it is giving today's kids the skills to be able to express themselves and have the vocabulary and words to deal with their emotions in a more healthy way than we've taught in the past, but also giving them scientifically proven ways to build their resilience in this world that is constantly throwing new and different and good and bad things at them. Unfortunately for all of us that have graduated high school, though, we've got to work it out on our own. Mm. With with your change management within the corporate mm-hmm. aspect of things, because you're dealing with so many different generations and it's the same with everybody 
and myself mm-hmm. when I've been in leadership positions and so forth. You're dealing with the different personalities, but also different generations as well. So from a, a change management point of view where, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is you're going into organisations when they are undertaking huge amounts of change, might be, um, well, you probably will explain it better, but how do you navigate those different different generations under that same umbrella when you're going through a common change in regards to mm-hmm. things? How do you roll that out? It used to be that um, communication 101 is hit people three different ways, three different times. Mm. So if you want something to really sink in and you need to talk to them in ways that take them and their fears and their needs into account. So someone who may be 60 and you're rolling out a new system might have concerns over whether or not they'll be able to learn the new system, whereas a millennial might be concerned about um, whether the button is blue and whether they can post to social media, like, for instance, <laughs> from that system, right? That's re- I'm sorry, I'm really stereotyping poor millennials today. But um, the the point is you need to talk to them all about the you know dispel fears and um help them to understand the what's in it for me is what we call it with them mm-hmm. um and talk to them in a variety of different ways unfortunately now that everyone's gone online uh because of covid the variety of ways is online or online or online pretty much so you know, for a lot of older generations, it's kind of been a catch up and get used to this new technology or, you know, bow out of the the workplace. Um, but I'd still say there's, there's still a preference for in-person with older generations, which can't be fulfilled right now by a lot of companies and a preference by younger generations for work from home and digital technologies. Uh, and you have to take that into account. With the different communication styles, do you bring that into your blog when you're writing? Well, I've got the blog and the uh, podcast. podcast so that's two yeah. different, <laughs> two different <laughs> ones. And then um, we we've just well, I've just started this year um, posting some stuff on Instagram and just playing around with that as a channel. But um, with the blog what I've tried really hard to do is to make sure that everything that we're doing is backed up by science. So I'll find real studies by real universities, you know, not clickbait type uh, articles so that hopefully I can speak to the people like me who for so long were cynical about those clickbait headlines, you know, nine ways to be more positive or (laughs) my gratitude is new best friend, all of that kind of stuff. (laughs) I just, I never even looked at. So for me, you know, calling it happiness for cynics was really just a way to make sure that it was reputable science-based information with the link so you can go straight to the, re- you know, straight to the source and check it yourself um, and try and convince people that really we need to buy into this a little bit more and it might feel a bit uncomfortable and it might seem a little naff at times, but it's real and it's science-backed and it has real benefits to people's well-being. At what point, going back to your in injury, at, at what point mm-hmm. did you start to walk? Like that rehab process would, would yeah. have been 
you had the bone grafting from your hip. At what point did you sort of start going through that? Yeah. So it was three months and I was meant to be able to start to put weight through the bone, but it turned out it hadn't healed. So then they did the surgery pretty much within a few days of that. I was still in hospital at that point, and then, um, which makes things a lot quicker. And then I had to wait another three months. So not long after that, that surgery, I went home. Um, and, you know, I got into physio the first day after I'd been discharged. And I was like, yes, I'm ready. Let's do this. And he was like, all right, we're going to do circle eights with your ankle. And I was like, what? Are you kidding? <laughs> so it was a long three months. It was a full <laughs> six months since the accident. And then we were like, all right, let's do this. So I got the all clear with the x-ray and went wheeling into my physio. I'm like, today's the day. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think I took, I still couldn't put weight through my right shoulder. So normally they put you, you know, the parallel bars at yeah. gym class, they yeah. put you on those and you, you hold your weight through both your shoulders and your, your arms. So I couldn't do that. So I had my poor physio, thank goodness he was a big, big boy um with a harness behind me in case you know I fell and I could use one arm as well um and we started out by putting me on scales and just shifting my weight onto that left leg to see if it would hold which hurt like hell excuse the language it was not pleasant um but I was just so determined to walk. I was like, okay, next. What are we doing now? <laughs> so I think I went back and forth along those bars about three times and then I was just, I was in tears. I was in so much pain. Knackered, like the yeah. leg was just hurting. But the yeah. more we did that, you know, the less painful it was. And then we spent a lot of time and I think three more surgeries, you know, after that to get more scar tissue out of the knee and the, the weird thing is they tell you with nearly all rehab um if if it hurts you should stop like it's not healthy to push too far because you can hurt things more and break things um but with the knee uh and with knee surgeries afterwards you have to push into that knee as hard as possible and break the scar tissue down and if you don't do that enough and don't push hard enough and don't you know, push yourself to the absolute limit, scar tissue will just stay and you won't get the bend back in your knee. So we did three rounds of surgery and then pushing against that scar tissue for weeks and weeks and then back into surgery and doing it until the doctor said, you know, we're not getting any more gains. Um, every time I go in, I create scar tissue, which, <laughs> you know, so there's only so much you can do. And so I got back far more bend in my knee than anyone anticipated. But that was, you know, you're just sitting there pushing against your own knee for hours. What angle are you at now in regards to mobility, in regards to your knee? So I got to 110 degrees. So 90 degrees is sitting on a chair and yeah. 110 is what is a good result for someone who's just had like an ACL or, a, you know, like a ligament. So we yeah. beat all expectations. And I remember, so I actually going back to that purpose and meaning and finding something to give you something to live for, um, 
I had meant to be, I was meant to be going to a volleyball tournament later that year in Europe with a bunch of friends. We decided we were going to go to gay games with a bunch of my gay friends and they'd invited me to go along and I obviously couldn't play. I couldn't walk at that stage, but they said, you know what, you should be up and walking by then. Why don't you come anyway? And I was like, oh, I don't know. That'll be just after I'm starting to walk. And they convinced me and I said, fine. Um, and said, you know what, while I'm there, I'm going to add a goal in and I want to climb the Tower of Pisa. So I went and saw my physio. I was like, by the way, <laughs> I've just booked plane tickets and we're going to do this. And that really helped. So having that money on the line, you know, $2,500 worth of flights <laughs> that I couldn't bail on, um, as well as the goal of climbing the Tower of Pisa, just it lit a fire in me. It gave me that meaning and reason and something to strive for. And not long after I came back from that trip, which to be fair, I spent a fair bit of it um, still in a wheelchair and definitely with a walking cane. So I wasn't out of the woods yet. I wasn't through my rehab at all. But when I came back from that trip, I said, all right, I'm going to book for a year's time to go hike Machu Picchu, you know, what, what can we do to get there? So my physio thought I was crazy firstly and was like, don't book the tickets yet. <laughs> I was like, I need to <laughs> or I'll back out. <laughs> but we well, did I'm it. Just surprised, I'm just surprised you booked the ticket because I'm thinking about it, if you're barely walking, how do you get up on the plane near this bathroom, like you're sitting for long periods uh-huh. of times? I freaking yeah. nightmare. So thankfully, one of my besties um, is a massage therapist and he oh, was okay. a dancer. So he's got a background in sports. <laughs> so the amount yeah. of times so I was like, hey, can you fix me? You know, because <laughs> everything was just so sore all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And there were days where I just didn't didn't leave the hotel. I was just too sore yeah. and too buggered. But So you yeah. climbed Machu so Picchu as well. Yeah. Yep. So we made it a year later, we did, and not long after that, I played volleyball again, social volleyball, played volleyball again, and now I'm back to playing um, socially. So just having those goals and that reason to push through physio, I think, made such a difference to how I approached that, but also helped to get me out of that place I was in. The other thing was that friend of mine asked me to come and coach um, and set up a new program, a competitive volleyball program for Sydney's LGBTIQ Volleyball Club. And so he wheeled me in on the first day because he wouldn't take no for an answer. <laughs> wheeled me in. <laughs> I was like, these men are not going to listen to some girl in a wheelchair. Like, you know, they're not going to pay. But they were lovely. And the great thing was that gave me back that volleyball community that I'd yeah. lost, you know, during the accident, being in hospital. And even better, it introduced me to a whole bunch of people, you know, who would joke and laugh with me and didn't look at me like I was broken because they didn't know any better. You know, they knew me just as the girl in the wheelchair who coaches us, (laughs) not Paul Murray who used to play and now is in a wheelchair. So, yeah, that that, that were the two big things that, that shifted things around from a mental health perspective, finding people to be around on a regular basis. And, again, it was only twice a week. But having that um, social contact and then having the goals, the meaning and something to wake up in the morning for and drive towards. And then everything started sort of slowly shifting and changing from there. 
Now, you've just also pronounced your name as Marie. So it's not Marie, it's Marie. Because I've been calling you Marie <laughs> through the whole bloody thing. You never corrected me. I, well, I'm sorry. I do this all the time to people. <laughs> it is Mari, like Ferrari. Um, but I lived in America for so long and they Mari isn't a name over there and they say Marie and I just answer to both. <laughs> so I take because now, because I'm going to do the intro separately and I'm going to refer to you as Mari and then uh, it's going to come in and it's going to be all Marie and they're going to be like, what the hell? Anyway, everyone needs oh, to go and listen to the editing. <laughs> No, I'm going to leave it in. Um, everyone needs to go and uh, listen to the podcast. It's absolutely uh, incredible. And if you've got an interest in mental health, it's uh, fantastic. Um, and, yeah, looking forward to Thank reading you. the blog, which I haven't done yet. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and for the chat. It's been a pleasure. No worries. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 